You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. How many of you this morning need to hear the words of the Good Shepherd that are open these verses? Do not be afraid. Little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Aren't those amazing words? Aren't those life-changing words? The words that turn the universe upside down, that turn all of human effort upside down. They're completely mind-blowing. Um, I, I almost don't know what to say about them, really. <laughs> because they, they turn everything around and they address the, our deepest fears, our deepest concerns, the deepest sort of existential crisis that lies at the heart of human, you know, experience. Um, that so much of our lives is taken up with fear and striving to take hold of something that we don't have yet. I mean, that sounds very uh, grand, very grandiose, but I mean, it really does characterize all of our day-to-day interactions and so much of our emotional life that we are fearful We're fearful of missing out, we're fearful of uh, being robbed somehow, we're fearful of things not going our way, and that fear characterizes so much of what we do and so much of how we think. And in these, just this short statement, Jesus just speaks to us and reveals the way the world really is. For those who belong to him, do not be afraid. Isn't that an amazing command? (laughs) Do not be afraid. And this is the absolutely mind-blowing bit. I just love how personal it is. You know, this, isn't a, this isn't an abstract idea. How personal this is. It is the far, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, your father, delights. He's happy. He's more than happy. He's blessed. He, he delights to give you everything your heart desires. He wants to. And because he's God, he's in the process of doing that. Because he's God, nothing will stop him from doing that. Nothing can get in the way of that. He is able to and is determined to give you the kingdom. And what does the kingdom mean? Everything that your heart desires. Deep down. uh, Everything that you need to know joy and peace, to know God for eternity, to be fulfilled, to be everything that he has made you to be. I just think that's such an amazing, world-changing sentence. And um, I just feel that God would speak into that for us very personally here this morning. And uh, we just address some of those struggles in our lives. Where are you afraid? Where do you need to be reassured that God is giving you the thing that you've been striving for. That God will give you the thing that you're worried you won't get. This is really simple, isn't it? But I think that's the first thing that God would not just say to us this morning, I think he would minister to us by his spirit. Where are you afraid? I'm going to give a few examples, but that's not going to be exhaustive. But I just want you to just ask the Holy Spirit right now to reveal in your own life Where is fear controlling you? Where are you striving to take hold of that which God has already given you? 
Will you do that? So it can be in our religious life. I know this certainly characterizes me at times. Uh, certainly in the past. Um, we can be, so to be zealous for God is of course a good thing, but if zeal comes, if we think somehow our performance comes first and that God is rewarding us for our religious effort, that can become a, a huge burden, a huge source of striving in our lives. That actually turns around what Jesus is saying to us here in this passage. We can try so hard to get a, a, a powerful experience of God or a fulfilled spiritual life or an amazing prayer life or a deep worship life or a satisfying experience of community at church or any of those things and it can rest on our shoulders and we can push so hard to take hold of it that actually it becomes this exhausting thing that God would remind us, I have given you that. I am in the process of giving you all that you desire through your effort. You offer me the fruit of what I've given you. You don't earn the kingdom. It can be in our moral striving to be good, to be upright, to be well-behaved. We can try so hard to be perfect. And, uh, you know, often we can achieve very small, we can achieve the illusion of having small seasons of moral perfection because we can, you know, stop doing something that we've struggled to stop or we can start doing that we've struggled to do. Um, But then, of course, if your experience is anything like mine, and the Bible reassures me that it certainly is, um, after a little while, you'll come face to face with depths of your own sin, and some, you know, you'll fail in some uh, big way, and that sense of exhaustion, and what is all that for? And it's God. How can God love me? And God would just remind you this morning: it's not about how hard you try to be perfect. Your perfection in Christ is something he is pleased to give you. Yes, it's a process. Yes, it doesn't come immediately. Yes, there is effort and all those things involved, but it's it's not something you earn. It's not something you have to try hard to get. God is giving it to you. Are you uh, anxious about the things that are happening in your life? You know, the way that your life is unfolding. Are are things not quite how you expected them to be? Come on, at least a few nods, I think, to that, right? (laughs) Are things not quite how you expected them to be? And at at that point in your life where you think, God, what has my whole life been building up to, up to this point? And that fear comes, that's actually maybe somehow we're being robbed, that we've invested so much into following God, or doing things His way, or loving people at our expense or whatever. And actually we've come to this this pass in our lives where it seems like actually all that might be just kind of disappearing. Or some tragedy has come that actually you feel like you really haven't earned. You really haven't deserved. Quite the opposite. And you think, really, what is all that for? And God would speak into that. He would just say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'm pleased to give you the kingdom. I'm pleased to give you everything your heart desires. You know, the kingdom of God is eternal life and all that God promises isn't easy. It's not child's play, but it is a gift. That's what God would remind us. Whatever that thing is that you're afraid of, that you're striving to take hold of, God would just remind you Yes, it's not, 
Um, he's happy to concede that the Christian life is not easy. He tells us again and again that it comes with troubles and toil and danger and sword and all those things. But it is a gift. You know, he's brought us safe thus far, it says in the hymn. God has brought us safe thus far and he will bring us home. There's this amazing reassurance in that passage. And I just, I trust that God is speaking to you about your own circumstances in that. Behind these words is this uh, uh, biblical picture that's kind of hidden away in the passage that God would use just to, just to fill out that message that he would speak to us this morning. The words, do not be afraid, and then that reassurance, they echo two things from the Old Testament. The, the phrase, little flock, is an echo of one of God's favorite terms for his people, Israel. Again and again through the Old Testament, he talks about the flock of Israel. And there's an irony in this little flock in the sense that, of course, the identity of Israel flows out of Abraham as the, the father of the nation, uh, who once was a shepherd, uh, quite a wealthy one, but he had no children. So there was no flock. And God's promise to him was that he would have innumerable descendants. And that as Israel grew and grew and grew and fulfilled that promise, there's almost like this, uh, this in-joke, if you like, that God is saying, a little flock, but it's not really little. And here we are at this point in history. Actually, God's plans through Israel to bring the Messiah into the world and then to bring the gospel to all nations and bring all nations into the knowledge and to the love of God is, is it's on the cusp of happening in this verse. And so God is he's speaking in one sense, uh, almost jokingly, like it's in joke to say, there's this little flock that's not little. Um, but also there is just 12 disciples. <laughs> So it is kind of little because it's the beginning of something new. So that's one echo. And then there's this other echo here, which is this do not be afraid, which is um, we see this whole thing, I think, mirrored in Genesis chapter 15, where God speaks to Abraham, having promised him in Genesis 12 that he would have uh, descendants innumerable, that uh, he would bless all nations. Still, these three chapters and so many years later, Abraham is childless and God speaks to him. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. He says to childless Abraham. Do not be afraid. And of course, Abraham's life is characterized by this interplay between faithfulness and fear. Even after this reassurance, Abraham replies to God in Genesis 15. He says, you know... God says, do not be afraid. He replies, but I have no heir. A slave in my household is going to be my heir. And God says, no, you will have a son. Even so, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and he sleeps with his slave, Hagar, and they have a son, Ishmael, because he thinks God isn't going to fulfill the promise. And God is still faithful to him, even though he disobeys, even though he's afraid. God is faithful. And there's this amazing fulfillment of this promise in the face of Abraham's what is it? <laughs> Wavering faith that goes from strong to weak, from strong to weak. God's faithfulness overwhelms his weakness, takes all his mistakes and turns them upside down and fulfills all his promises to deliver the very thing that he spoke to him all those years before, thousands of years before Jesus is speaking these passages. So he's saying, do not be afraid. And God is speaking to us. He's saying, live a life of faith. And I will fulfill all these promises to you. No matter your weakness, no matter your wavering. Just as I turned Abraham's 
tiny response into the people Israel and the people Israel into the, uh, the Messiah and the Messiah and his message into the, the church that fills the whole world. So if you're faithful, if you trust me, if you do not be afraid, trust that it's my good pleasure. I'll fulfill all my promises to you. Abraham's God is our God. And Jesus' Father is our Father. So where is that fear? And will you let God minister his comfort to you? That balm. This is true. I don't think I'm adding anything, really. I'm, I'm barely unpacking the text, am I? This is true. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the King. Will you let him apply that truth to your life? There's amazing ancient prayer, which I, I came across this week, um, which I just think sums this up so well. Almighty, ever-living God, whom, taught by the Holy Spirit, we, we have come to call our Father. We, uh, we dare to call our Father. Bring, we pray, to perfection in our hearts the spirit of adoption as your sons and daughters. Isn't that a good prayer? That's, our, that's um, God's desire for us this morning is the perfection of that spirit of adoption as, your sons and, as his sons and daughters. Well, I think as well as ministering to our current fears, as well as speaking to in, into our situation. The Lord uh, wants to teach us this morning as well, gives us to lay a foundation for us. And he does that in the next uh, verse, talking about selling your possessions and giving to the poor. Um, so Jesus is giving us, if you like, an example of um, what the freedom, if once we, if we have this, this spirit of adoption, if we really trust that God is our Father and he delights to give us the kingdom, what kind of life should we live? What kind of life does that enable us to live? And, and really what Jesus is saying in these next few verses is he's saying that it enables us to live a life that is free, free of fear, free of fear that chokes the eternal life out of us and sets us free to experience eternal life. And he chooses an example that is both instructive and illustrative. So when Jesus says, give, uh, sell everything you have and give your possessions to the poor, in one sense, he is saying that to all of us. Not completely literally, because that would have interesting implications, maybe. I don't think I'm watering down God's word, but you know, the Lord is using this powerful illustration. And actually, some people are called to sell everything they have and give it to the poor and live that life. I, I do believe there is that special calling upon some people to live that. But he's using this example um, really because possessions and people are the focal point that often illustrate to us where fear and faith are operative in our life. Does that make sense? Possession and people are often the focal point where, um, where fear and faith become obvious in our lives. Fear becomes obvious because we overvalue possessions or things or you know objects, whatever you want to call them. You overvalue them and they kind of stifle the life out of you. And um, people, because they are the most valuable thing in the world, they are made, other people made in the image of God and, and loving people is the height of fulfilling the law and eternal life is found in that interchange of, 
of loving people. And uh, often we find this tension in our in our lives that we get those things back to front. We get them back to front. So what things do we typically place too much value on? What things fill our lives with fear, with anxiety? What things promise much and deliver little? What things seem valuable but gradually decay? What things are eaten by moths? What things seem so secure but can suddenly be snatched away? Possessions and money. Things and status, ephemeral things, passing things. What things do we typically undervalue? What offers eternal reward? What has lasting value? What is true treasure? What gives us true security? What cannot be taken away from us? What is treasure in heaven? It's love for God and for other people. So Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Why the poor? Why not just everyone? Because the poor are those we least likely to value. In our sinfulness, we value those who give us status, who make us feel better. But the poor, well, the poor, you know, it doesn't literally, doesn't have to mean those with no money. It's those who give us nothing. Whether it's, you know, make us feel better about ourselves or enrich our lives emotionally or whatever it is. So what is Jesus saying uh, to you and to me this morning? Maybe, I have to concede to some of you, he might be saying, sell everything and give it to the poor and go and live a completely different type of life. It's not impossible. But I think what he would say is, uh, similar to the first thing we've looked at today, what are you afraid of? that's controlling your life? What thing are you placing your trust in that is robbing you of the joy and fullness of eternal life? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your treasure is in things that are temporary and passing and decaying and of limited value, your heart will be there. If if your heart is in the treasures of the earth and your heart is you know, locked into the earth, soiled and buried. If it's things, then your heart is slowly starved. One uh, well-known Christian puts it like this, we do not live better when we flee, hide, refuse to share, stop giving and lock ourselves up in our own comfort. Such a life is nothing less than slow suicide. Instead, when we invest in what is eternal, when we love people as people, when we obey God, when we pour out our lives for others, not only do we store up treasure for ourselves in heaven, Jesus says that, of course, but where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That if you like, imagine that pile of treasure in heaven as we love people, that, that gleaming pile of gold. The light from that, from that eternal treasure, begins to fill our lives now. That's what, that's what it means. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That there is a, a now element. It's not just all in the future. But actually the light of now, of eternity, begins to fill our lives as we place value in people. As we love others as God has commanded to us to, as we pour out our lives for others. 
Another Christian puts it like this. The most important hour is always the present one. The most important human being is always the one whom you face right now. The most important deed is always love. It's, na- it's in the now with the people around us, in act- with actual people and actual relationships and the opportunities that every day presents us with, that eternity streams into our lives and we experience the joy and the fullness of life that God promises us. So again, the challenge. What areas of your life are controlled by fear rather than love? Self-protection rather than self-giving. areas in your life are you behaving in a way that arises out of a lack of confidence in the fact that God is your father maybe your possessions yes, fairly obvious one you don't have to sell them but you have to be willing to use them for the sake of others I remember hearing something on the radio this week about um, uh it's a couple who are in counselling and uh, they got on very well, but the husband just couldn't understand his wife's behaviour when it came to money. She would save for no reason. She would be re- incredibly anxious about spending any money uh, for anything unnecessary. And she would save and save and save. And over the course of their relationship, she managed to save thousands of thousands of pounds. But when this uh, couple's counsellor asked her, what are you saving for? She said, I don't know. <laughs> Her life was filled with anxiety. Like she couldn't even go out for a meal with her husband without feeling incredibly guilty. She couldn't receive a present for her birthday without receiving being incredibly guilty. And when asked, what are you saving for? She didn't know. Well, we can treat possessions, we can preserve them like uh, one of those incredibly rich people with a massive garage with 20 cars in that they never drive. You know, just shiny things that look good and make us feel good somehow. But we never use them for anything. Now, okay, I don't think there's anyone here with 20 cars in your garage or whatever. But we can be precious about things, can't we? Protecting the things that we own rather than using them for the sake of others. Our homes particularly. Our free, our free time, if, if we can see that as a possession. What areas of your life are these strongholds of fear? Status, I think... You know, status, the way other people see us, I, I don't know, that I don't encounter that a lot, if I'm honest with you, um, in the lives of Christians. I, it's not quite the same way as it used to be, the fear of what other people think of us. I think our society has shifted somewhat. But, you know, I think we do fear the way people see us as Christians, that people will see us as odd or, you know, strange, that, that we have, lack a, we have a, a lack of confidence in our faith. So we're afraid about presenting the straightforward message of the gospel to people. And uh, we twist the gospel and we twist the message of Jesus to make it, we justify by saying it's more relevant when actually it's fear that's driving us to change the way we present it. Well, fears are controlling your life rather than love. We can even distance ourselves from uh, 
that love of people, that eternal treasure by doing things for people. You know, duty in the abstract, where we do a lot of things, say, for an organization or for a, a family. Right? Again and again, we, we do things. We feel like we're fulfilling our obligation, but we actually use that as a barrier to relationship. And we never actually enter into intimacy with the people that we're serving. That can be an act of fear. And, and it's most dangerous because we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing something good. You know, you, that could be a danger for me, frankly, as a, like with a church. You know, I can prepare my sermon, and I can come, and I can preach, and I can visit people, and you know, whatever it is as part of my job, I can do all those things and never emotionally give myself to the people that God has called me to pastor. And that would be a massive dereliction of duty. And the same, you know, apply that to your own situation, whether it's for the church or a job or families, spouses. Husbands, wives, you can serve your family, your spouse, your children, but never actually be entering into that eternal treasure of valuing them as people. True? I think think that's true. Sometimes it's easier to serve a stranger than it is to serve those closest to us. Precisely, you know, almost in inverse what Jesus is saying, but precisely because there's no real relationship. Is there disobedience in your life to God's commands? That's a stronghold of fear, isn't it? That actually, God tells us to do some really hard things. Like turn up at church on Sundays. Every week. And somebody comes along and says, if you do that, bad things are going to happen. I mean, I'm just picking one example. If you love your enemy, you know, that's... There's that person in your life who, if you are vulnerable with them, if you trust them or open up to them, the person who's taken advantage of you or is in a position to take advantage of you, you open your life up to them and you you love them as a person, there's a real risk that they will run away with what you give. Jesus says, love your enemy. So what is the stronghold of fear in your life? Maybe something I've mentioned. Maybe the Holy Spirit will tell you something else. Just let those words of Jesus just turn your life. I, I was going to say upside down, but really it's inside out, isn't it? Inside out. So what about these last few verses? Then, About the master returning from the wedding banquet. How do they tie into what we've already said? Well, there's a lot of meaning in them, and Jesus actually goes on to interpret them for the disciples in the following verses, and I'd encourage you to, to read that separately. But I want to interpret them in the light of what we've already said. Um, and really, what Jesus is saying here backs up, and it further illustrates what God, I think, would speak to us this morning about. You know, in, in life we sometimes experience these periods of kind of limbo, when one thing hasn't quite finished and another thing's about to begin, like the last day at work before you go on holiday. You know, and nothing's quite normal, is it? It's like it's, you, you can't stop thinking about the things you've got to do or the, the nice experiences you're going to have or whatever, and your mind's not 100% on your job and it's not really, and you can't actually go on holiday yet. Or just Friday afternoons. For some people, it's not just holidays, it's the end of the week or 
if you uh, finish in a job and you're going to start a new job, they have this weird thing called gardening leave. Has anyone ever been on gardening leave? No, not me. Never had a proper job, that's why. <laughs> There's a thing called gardening leave where you can't do your old job but you haven't left yet, you know. And there's this, there's this phenomenon, I think, in the way that we look at the Christian life and we read the verses that, we read what Jesus has said to us, we hear those words and we kind of imagine that to live the Christian life is like some kind of spiritual version of gardening leave. That actually we can't really fully enter into this life because there's another life coming. You familiar with that kind of caricature of the Christian life? And we say things like, we've got to be in the world and not of the world, which I think is a great phrase, by the way, but it's just that sometimes we mean like we can't be normal. <laughs> and it leaves us in a kind of limbo about what is the purpose of this life. And these last few verses, basically, they, they sort of undermine that whole thing and, and reset our, our understanding of what this life is, is about. Actually, to live as Jesus commands, to let go of what is temporary and take hold of what is eternal, is the essence of what it means to live in this world that God has made. That is life itself. This world is made, it was made through Christ, for Christ. That's what the Bible says. And we'll find its fulfillment. And now we're getting a bit mystical. I know we're drifting away from everyday life here, but this is the big picture. Everything in this world is made to be fulfilled in Jesus. And one day when he returns from that wedding banquet, all that is temporary in this life will disappear and all that is eternal will remain. And if we live our lives now according to that actual absolute reality about the future, then we will experience the goodness of that life now and we'll be prepared for his return in the future. It's not gardening leave. It's not this weird in-between life. That is, if you, just to put it simply, that is the good life that God invites us into when we live for eternity. Everything was made for this future. And what an amazing future it is. I love this, this harmony here between what Luke uh, what Luke records Jesus' words and then what John records in Jesus' actions. It says, when the, uh, the master returns, he will dress himself and he will serve us, his servants. It's a picture of that upper room, isn't it, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. That's what we're headed for. All that we sacrifice now, all that we seem to give up now, all that we put aside because of faith, God returns to us. Not just multiplied, but squared and cubed and factored by however many numbers you want. What an amazing future it is. He will serve us and we will live in union with him. When we lived, when we live now prepared and preparing for that day, we are not less alive, not caught in limbo, not unguardingly. We are more alive. Our lives make more sense. We are more at home. The world is full of good but temporary things. And it's full of eternal things. The temporary things should serve the eternal, not the other way around. That's what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away childish things. And God's word to us this morning, the same thing, just put slightly differently to everything I've already said. Put away childish things. Put away childish fears. Reject what fades and spoils and take hold of that which lasts forever. Faith, hope and love. The greatest of these, of course, is love. Let's pray.